Welcome to episode 157 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and I am Lauren Bannock, the host. So today I had a great chat with Rich Chesser of British Swimming, formerly Scottish Rugby, the Scottish National Rugby Team, and a wide variety of other elite sports teams that Rich has worked for over the years. And this forms the first of many episodes that we'll call a mini-series, if you like, which is sort of an in-the-trenches focus on being a practitioner in primarily elite sport environments. We've sort of delved into these areas in the past on the podcast, but it's never really been a an actual specific episode. So we're going to have a bunch of top-level practitioners, highly experienced people from around the world working in lots of different sports. And I know that you will join me in, in being fascinated by hearing what these highly experienced practitioners have to say about being a practitioner in those situations, how they got there, what they do, how they deal with things. The fact that there are many ways to deal with a situation, there are many ways to achieve those roles, and there's so much to learn from these amazing practitioners around the world. So I'm looking forward to to bringing many of them to you, which will be sort of interspersed between our regular, more technical conversations with experts that you've become used to on this podcast. So Before I get into the conversation with Rich, let me just give you a quick overview of what we talked about. We talked about Rich's background, how he started, how he got where he is now, his sort of unconventional pathway, uh, similar to my own pathway in some respects, at least. So that's very interesting to hear about how he got to do, get to the roles that he's had at the very top end of elite and professional sports. He talks to us a lot about the lessons and learnings he's had from working in elite rugby, Olympic swimming, and various other sports. And we we discussed that in great detail. There's so much to learn from those experiences over the years. And we sort of reflect on that between us and mine that, that experience for your benefit. There are many gems that came out of that that I think will be of benefit to anyone aspiring to work in elite sport and for those who are currently working in elite sport because of course we can all share and learn from each other which of course is the point of of doing these these podcasts we talk about moving from team sport to individual sports which of course is a very different situation there's a lot to there's a lot one has to do working with a team of 20 30 40 professional Athletes, professional players, is very different though when you're focused very much on on individuals. So we talk about that and the challenges and and such that is related to working in those different contexts. We talk about the challenges of COVID, the pandemic that we're all experiencing. And it's very interesting to hear how Rich has been working through that with his athletes at British Swimming, GB Swimming, but also the preparations for Tokyo 2020, which of course never happened in 2020 and are still ongoing. And it's fascinating to hear about how a performance nutritionist at that level is helping his squad prepare for that, given the challenges that we're all experiencing. We do also talk about applying for a role in performance nutrition and Rich's perspective on what is required to to get noticed when you apply for those roles and uh, the sorts of things that are necessary in your application to to get to that 
that stage of, of being lucky enough to get on, on that pathway of working with these sorts of athletes. And we talk about all sorts of other things that we've both learned working in elite and professional sport that we feel would be of value to up and coming aspiring sport and exercise nutritionists. So I hope you, you find this of, of value as much as I did. And like I said, there will be many other experts that I'm talking to. So you'll always get something new from every one of these, these chats. Before I get you to listen to this conversation I had with Rich today, do come to our website at www.theiopn.com where you can learn about our online diploma program, our professional practice-focused program in performance nutrition. Many of our graduates are now working in elite sport professional teams around the globe, and that's for a good reason. They're highly regarded and demanded as such. So do consider checking out our program, even if you've already done a graduate, postgraduate pro, uh, program of some sort in sport and exercise nutrition. Ours is very different. It's very practice focused. So consider it from that perspective. Also check out our platform, SEMPRO. It's an online software platform that enables you to practice performance nutrition with ultimate impact, so to speak. The tools, the resources you need to operate your practice online, communicate with your athletes, whether it's individuals or through teams. We have factored all of that into the awesome platform that is SEMPRO. Just go check it out. It doesn't cost you anything. Just go check it out to have a look. You may find that it will be of great value to you, as it is already to a rapidly growing number of individual sports nutritionists and teams, I'm excited to say. And of course, you can catch up on all our podcasts at theiopn.com. So that's it from me. Enjoy this conversation with Rich Chesser. Take care, everyone. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And I am very grateful to bring to you a special guest today, Rich Chesser. How are you, mate? I'm very well, thanks, Lauren. Thanks very much for having me on. We've made this second go work. <laughs> I'm struggling with technology today, but hopefully all is well with this recording today. Listen, Rich, it's really good to have you on this podcast today. I'm experimenting here. Well, not experimenting, but I'm going to try something slightly different. I've had a few practitioner focused podcasts over the last few years. But what I want to do here, which we're going to kick off with yourself, is a more sort of in the trenches conversation. There are quite a few really experienced practitioners out there in the field. And they are, of course, a minefield of, of information and knowledge that I wanted to start to tap into in, in this sort of mini series of in the trench episodes for our We Do Science podcast. And uh, you and I know each other, of course. So I thought, right, let's get Rich Chesser in on this podcast. So without further ado, I think the best thing to do is let's just kick off this conversation with just a little bit of an overview, Rich, of, of your general background and your career to date. My career to date, it's slightly interesting, mainly because it's been really quite linear since I started. And I, and I suppose I say it's interesting because it's probably not representative of the challenges and the diversity of backgrounds that we might see in new graduates or maybe younger practitioners just trying to establish themselves within the within the profession. So I actually studied sports studies and psychology at uh, University of Stirling. And going into my fourth year, this was 2003, I realised that I was going to graduate in about a year's time and I certainly wouldn't employ me. 
So I very quickly decided I'm going to have to do something about that. So I decided to go on and do my master's um, and did the Sport and Exercise Nutrition Master's down at Loughborough, which was at the time a relatively new course. Ron Mon, Susan Sheriffs had brought it down from Aberdeen University. So with them, plus Clyde Williams and, and a number of other brilliant academics, Letty Bishop, Mike Gleason and so on, it was, I suppose, in hindsight, was a, the best possible learning opportunity that you could have as a wannabe sport and exercise nutritionist at the time. And from there, there was an opportunity to support a charity amateur cycling team who were riding the Tour de France route just ahead of the professionals in uh, 2005, summer 2005. So that was Jeff Thomas and what would later be the developed into the Jeff Thomas Foundation. Now, Jeff, if you don't know him, he's, um, he's an ex-professional footballer, ex-England footballer who suffered leukaemia a few years after he retired. And he's, he's just done a heck of a lot of charity work for numerous charities, but mainly now through the Jeff Thomas Foundation to develop funds and resource for uh, for leukemia research. So I was fortunate enough to be driving around France on the summer of 2005, mixing up hydration drinks, handing out recovery drinks and so on and so forth, and just supporting these five guys try a mammoth task for, and no disrespect to them, but very amateur cyclists to be getting around the thousands of miles of the, of the tour route that year. And I suppose I kind of mentioned that because as much as it was a relatively small task in the grand scheme of things, what it did is is it just gave me my first break within sports nutrition. So I had applied for an internship position at the EIS and it was almost off the back of that cycling experience that I that I really built my application and built my uh, my interview around and fortunate enough to be successful in that and, and I spent a year with Nigel Mitchell as my as my mentor at EIS Sheffield which was brilliant and I still call Nigel my mentor to this day and um, he was he's been influential in my career in numerous different ways. And then following a year there at the IS, uh, I worked for two years, continuing at the IS, but with the judo and boxing teams in the build up to the 2008 Beijing Games. Judo, unfortunately, we didn't have a great games there. We didn't come out with any medals. We were pretty close on a few occasions, but anybody in judo knows it's just, it's sometimes on your day, it goes well, and sometimes it just doesn't. Whereas with boxing, we won three medals in uh, two bronzes and, and a gold medal with James DeGale there. So a nice successful period. And straight after the games, I moved up to Scottish rugby. So initially as a performance nutritionist, the role evolved over time there. And I was, I was at Scottish Rugby for about eight years. And from initially working just with national team players, senior squad players, it evolved into pretty much all aspects of the teams within the Scottish Rugby umbrella. So all the way down the age grade systems, all the way across to the women's game and the sevens game and so on and so forth. And then in 2016, I decided I just I wanted the or the lure of Olympic sport came calling again and I joined British Swimming just before the Rio 2016 Games. Uh, again, initially as, as full-time nutritionist with a world-class programme, but laterally I've moved into a bit of a split role as uh, what's titled physical performance lead. So I have maybe uh, around about three days a week of, of pure nutrition delivery and I've got a couple of days of leading the um, physical performance team, which consists of physiology, nutrition and uh, strength conditioning. So I've got a, a few staff within uh, within our team. So I suppose recently, the, particularly over the past couple of years, my pure nutrition involvement has decreased, but I've increased in my exposure and my interest in other areas of general management and, and leadership within um, world-class teams. Brilliant. I mean, what an epic journey you've had. I don't know if, if you've had time yet to reflect on that immense journey that that you've had. I know that when I did my professional doctorate, a whole section of my doctorate was a critical reflection of my entire career. 
and I started off much lower down than you, than you did. And I won't spend time on that now, but I've discussed that in my many earlier podcasts, which, you know, was an initial bumpy journey. But where I felt with your story that you said something there about, I wouldn't have employed myself, mm. which is, a, I, I think it was great that you had that awareness back then. And I guess the, the problem that maybe some graduates have now or people going through that initial undergraduate entry point into sport and exercise nutrition or sports science which of course back in our day there was practically nothing I yeah. mean you just mentioned that you started sort of in the first ever programs and indeed when I started there wasn't any at all not in sports nutrition at least so that's probably a, an interesting point that we could spend just a little bit of time on initially is that for you that I guess that experience that you've had getting into this field when there was really nothing there. So I guess you were sort of a, you made your own path, so to speak, you know, it's, it's almost entrepreneurial if you want to look at it that, at that way relative to in your position now as someone who effectively sort of oversees hires other performance nutritionists, you've got a much more organized concept of what a graduate should look like. If you think about that, and sort of flip it the other way around if you knew then what you knew now sort of thing is there is there anything that that you think would come from that reflectively that you think you know the listeners might find of interest from the lens of rich chesser yeah well, i think you know i i i have far more doubts in my knowledge and in my abilities now than i did way back then when i graduated you know, we were always so also self-assured back at those times that uh, that you know we were the experts, and I knew what to uh, what to do, and I would come in and tell you, and you would you would follow it because I'm the expert, and that's far less now how I how I go about conducting my business. So, yeah, I think if if I could nudge my younger self, it would be just maybe to take a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a more balanced, holistic view in supporting my athletes than uh, than necessarily I did back in that time. I think. You know, I, th- I think back to my career, and I think there is a large element of career serendipity. And now, I don't believe that you that you make your own luck, but I do believe that you can put yourself in more fortuitous situations. So there's there's all these little critical flashpoints within my career, such as applying via our or having the conversation with our lab technician at Loughborough about this opportunity with this charity team, through to actually when I was I'd, I'd missed my original interview for my internship with the EIS and, and Nigel phoned me up and saying where the hell are you you were meant to be here 15 minutes ago and I said well I'm 250 miles away and I think back to that point thinking well if I'd just not picked up that phone or if I'd gone I can't really be bothered driving down to go to this interview today everything would be so different so I do think you put yourself in slightly more fortuitous situations by the circles that you move in and the connections that you keep and and, and one thing that is really important especially in our industry which is still a very young and small industry is that you know you never burn your bridges and and you maintain strong connections with everybody as you move through because the people that maybe I once employed in consultancy roles or contractor roles might well be my next employer. You never know. It's 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 small enough. And it's not always this case, it's not as simple as the case of it's not what you know, it's who you know. But yeah. undoubtedly 
people talk and and if I'm looking for a recommendation, I'm going to pick up the phone to you and ask you what that individual is like and you're going to give me an honest answer. And that's going to be more than what I'm going to be able to glean from a CV or a, or a cold call email, whatever it might well be. So I think it's really important that you maintain good, strong circles and, and, and present yourself in a particular way that it's going to come back favourably upon you. So there's a lot of gems in there, Rich. Again, I I hear what you're saying, and I, I think about my own career path as well. And there's a couple of areas that I think that you've pointed out that are absolutely important, certainly has happened to me and many other people that I know. For example, one thing I found interesting about what you just said was you sort of, you've had to sort of serendipitously move forwards from varying types of opportunity to another but also it sounds to me like you've you've almost sort of had to multitask your way there and therein lies something that i think is very interesting because if you're you know as a practitioner you're you know if we're going to focus on sport and exercise nutrition you have to do more than just sport and exercise nutrition and that that i guess can you know from a knowledge based perspective that's relevant to your practice that might be yes you need to have additional knowledge in things like sports science, not just sports nutrition or understanding the needs of your athletes. So yeah, you, you know, biomechanics or whatever, which is why I personally found my own training and education as an S&C coach initially, or even a personal trainer back in the very old days, all had its values. But ultimately we're, we're working with human beings. So we need to, we need to, we need to actually be able to relate to them, talk to them. And, you know, particularly in nutrition, when of course it's very much about bringing about changes in habits and behaviors. And if you can't influence that person, if they don't trust you for whatever reason, which could be you just were late for appointments all the way down to you don't look or act professional or, you know, or or you speak rocket science and they can't understand you. These are all features that aren't specifically sports nutrition, but they are very much there. But going back to the whole sort of multifunctional approach to where you are today, whereby the modern performance nutritionist has a very slick path. They, they do their degree in even sport and exercise nutrition at the bachelor's level, they now exist. You do your master's, you, you get center registered, whatever, which is a well-organized, well-developed pathway, but they can't teach you everything. So of course it is at the expense of some of those experiences that you've had, for example, multifunctioning and, and having that situation where, I don't think I'd employ myself and asking yourself, well, how could I get employed talking to people where now getting those degrees and certifications, the assumption is, is that you will get a job, which sadly I know is a challenge for so many, just by virtue of the amount of people that contact me on LinkedIn, for example, it's, you know, with the highest possible levels of qualifications. Again, talking to your younger self, Rich, in the modern day era, though, because this is modern times for performance nutritionists, is there is there anything there that you think was is a value there that you could advise, you could mentor our listeners? You finished on the perfect point there. That I was, I suppose, fortunate in many circumstances. I don't like the use of that word. In, in to have Nigel as my mentor, and he helped shape and develop my ideas and gave me the freedom to experiment and to express my ideas within a within almost a safe 
not risk-free context, but within a, a sort of managed risk environment. And in turn, he was critical in exposing me to different environments and so on and so forth that, that he was working in and different athletes that he was working in. It's going to be important. If you're trying to do it alone, it's always going to be difficult. If you've got that mentor, if you've got that buddy to, to help and um, provide you opportunities and 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 exposure, then it's it's going to make a heck of a difference. I think one other area when I when I think back to working in rugby and I, I, you see a lot of turnover in staff within rugby as as you would expect that one thing that's always important is those people who hang around for a long time are always the people who are real true team players. That's a really important one. You know, you talked about the multifunctioning aspect and when you're in a camp environment or a squad environment or a team room, wherever it may well be, the, the, there's two things to me that stand out. One, people expect you to lead on your discipline. So if there's anything associated with food or nutrition in that environment, be it catering, be it water access, be it a supplement, whatever, be it a conversation about food and nutrition, people expect you to be the leader there. So you need to expect to step up and to own that area first and foremost. So look after your first area, your area first and foremost. And secondly, once you've done that and your area is up and running and it's up to speed, you've got to dig in. You've got to be a team player, whether that is moving kit around, whether that is going and getting something printed for the coach, whether that's sticking cones out on the pitch. That's what you that's what you do. You don't just sit and protect your area and say, I'm the one who knows about nutrition. Come and speak to me about nutrition. You do your bit and then you make sure you do everybody else's bit and you help out there as well. So I think it's important to not just present your area in the best possible way it's therefore just to present yourself in the best possible way to the people around you as well i'm so pleased you said that because from time to time people will you know you get asked what do you do you know and i'm talking about friends family just social whatever my answer frequently the answer i avoid is telling people that i'm a nutritionist or whatever (laughs) because then it's the bane of every nutritionist's experience day-to-day experience because then they're like oh so do i stop eating carbs to lose weight or whatever oh no (laughs) but what i tell people is i have a lot of conversations in my job and i develop that to say that you know i have to have conversations with my my clients my athletes my players i need to have conversations with the technical staff I'm having conversations with the performance chef, the medical team. And if you extend that to the way that you perfectly place that, you know, muck in, go carry the, you know, the bollards about and help move the football nets or or whatever it is, because they're perfect opportunities to have conversations. And I think the worst thing for a practitioner is like the nutritionist is sitting with their laptop or whatever at the end of the canteen. Nobody's talking to them because they're not approachable. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't even know where everyone's name is or it's not all about nutrition, but it is very much about the conversations and what develops from that. For you then, what are the ways in which you've felt? What are the tips, if you like, for starting those conversations, having those or creating those opportunities that enables that information, that knowledge to come to light, that develops those relationships, that develops that trust that is so necessary for us as performance nutritionists and all the stakeholders that we have to work with. Two things, particularly when the athletes come to mind. So quite often, if, if, we, if we take rugby as an example, body composition assessment is commonplace within rugby. You know, most nutritionists will do sets of skin folds on various squads over various periods of time. And I quite often asked practitioners, you know, what have you done today? And they've said, well, I did skin folds and so and so. And you go, okay, what else did you do? And they went, well, that's about it. And I said, well, was that not a 15 minute consultation opportunity when you had them there 
just one-on-one, just the opportunity to talk nice and relaxed. You, you, when, when you're experienced in doing the body composition monitoring, you can, you can go through it in a nice and easy flow. You know how your data recording, you know what you're doing. So it becomes a great opportunity just to have 15 minutes of a one-to-one time and a great connection opportunity as well. It doesn't have to be about body composition whatsoever. It can be about anything. So I think you've got to look at those opportunities to say, how can I do a little bit more out of this instead of staying quiet? And, you know, perfect example, like you said, with the nutritionist in the dining room with the laptop out instead of actually just milling about and saying hey if you tried the sweet potatoes try it with putting on a bit of paprika tonight so you can do this dish at home and so on so you've got to look for those little uh, those little gems those little opportunities and then the second thing i'd say is and we've talked a little bit about this just around the edges just the importance of the relationships shouldn't be underestimated at all and what I call transactional nutrition, which is kind of SAS style nutrition, if you like, you go in, you do the job that you're tasked with, and then you leave. There's no follow up. That's that's it done. That's fine and well, and it has its place, and it's it's what some sports nutritionists need to do at times. It's what we all need to do at times. It's what some sports need at times. But we need to appreciate and understand that long-term change comes about from having these real strong relationships and these relationships take time and need to be worked upon. And it's, it's absolutely two ways. And I think if you, if you spoke to any practitioner within sports and, and asked them what their highs and lows are within sport, all of those highs and lows are going to be interlinked with connected journeys and the relationships and the journey that that, that they've been on with that uh, with that individual with that athlete with that team with that club that organization whatever it might well be they're not going to say oh my highlight was producing a 10-page catering document for for this athlete or for this organization it's it's going to be the journey that they go on and that's because of the relationships and because of that and and maybe particular maybe more so and i don't want to be too pigeonholy here but maybe more so in generation z and and the vast majority of my swimmers are generation z in that sort of 16 to 25 age bracket we say a lot of the time as a support team that they don't care what you know until they know that you care so we invest a lot of time in making sure that our swimmers know that i'm i'm invested in you I'm invested in you, and swimming's British swimming's great at doing this. We we look at the swimmer through three main lenses. We look at them as as the athlete, so how they train, how they own their program, their drive, their development potential, their physical attributes. We look at them as a performance. So how do they thrive in that competition environment? And do they do they love the race? Do they handle the arena environment? But critically, we also look at them as a person. So what is their identity out with swimming? Who are they as an individual? Do they enjoy that journey what's their life balance and so on i think once you start to appreciate an individual not as a series of numbers be it physiological markers or jump scores or body composition numbers and you you look at them as the athlete the performer and the person and you demonstrate to them that you're invested in them individually because you're willing to spend time on them that's where you create a relationship that goes much further and I remember James Morahan spoke to you on, on, on the podcast really quite neatly about this. I think he used the example of rugby league players and he was trying to get optimal recovery in the afternoon and so on. And it was only through really sitting down and speaking with them on an individual level, non-performance, non-nutrition related, that he kind of realised actually his strategies were slightly misplaced because these guys were going home and they were, I think they, they, they were picking their kids up from school or they were spending time with their with their wives and, and therefore they just weren't in the 
didn't have the same opportunities to follow the nutrition plan that he was wanting. So by learning and creating a relationship there, he was better able to manipulate his strategies to help them get the best out of themselves as the performer, but also not detract from who they were as a person. You made me think of the many uncomfortable things that happened in my experiences early in my career, like giving a my first ever presentation. This was when I was at London Irish. And I remember I gave this presentation to the players. You know, it's a room packed full of some massive units, you know. And uh, I just started basically doing the, here's the rocket science approach to performance nutrition. Of course, everyone was looking out the window or on their phone. And, it, you know, the only way I got through that was at the end of that, it happened to be lunchtime. And then I just sat down. And one of the guys said, that didn't go too well, did it? And they, they just started taking the piss out of me. And essentially, the banter started from there. And then I found myself being welcomed in yes. by the team. I learned right there. I need to ask, you know, well, what, did you, what do you want to hear? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do you know? Rather than making that assumption that I need to go in and give them this really vanilla performance nutrition presentation and handouts and so well, on, you're I'm, absolutely I'm, right. I've got, a, I've got a very neat related story there in that Andy Robinson, who's uh, head coach of the Scotland team for a number of years through to uh, sort of 2010, 2011, 2012 period. You know, we'd set up a system on the frequency in which I wanted the guys to eat, particularly in around match day and the day before and so on. I remember saying to the guys, most of the guys were in the team room at the time. I remember going to the team room at four o'clock in the afternoon saying, guys, look, mid-afternoon snack is out. Away you go, go and get your feed. And one of the coaches yelled out, oh, for goodness sake, Chessel, we're not feeding again. Oh, come on. <laughs> and it kind of made it a bit negative. And I got a little bit uh, a little bit frustrated at that. And I spoke to, to Robbo, the coach, and said to him, look, I'm a little bit annoyed that I'm trying to create these strategies. And, and you know, these guys are kind of taking the mick and, and not supporting it. And he said, he looked at me straight in the eye and said, Chessel, any chat about nutrition is good chat act upon it, you know, activate it, use it to your advantage. And that spun it very quickly for me, you know, similar to your scenario, that out of a bit of adversity and frustration, you go, right, I just need to, I need to recalibrate here and use this to my advantage. So next time I I, I egged it up, I played it up and I overemphasized it and I, I made it excitement, exciting and, and and made a bit of my fool of myself about how, how we're eating again and, and this sort of opportunity that we had to influence um, match the outcome and so on. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100% about how You've got to look at those situations and say, that didn't go so well, but what am I going to take from it? Well, that's why I found I find reflection, particularly, you know, the reflective practice, critical reflection, there's, you know, being reflective. There's all sorts of ways of doing this, but one of the most powerful tools I have found to develop my own practice. And I guess in a very, in a very basic way, one of the things that we're talking about here is you just use the phrase, depending on how you look at something, you need to look at it differently. We use in sort of more practice science terminology, we use phrases like through the lens. So through the lens of the practitioner, we see it one way. We hear things, we have a certain language we're used to for our own learnings. But when you when you look at this or see things through the lens of your your client, your player, your athlete, it's very different. And I think Again, a learning I've taken from that, which has dramatically improved my own practice, is, is my own interaction with my, my clients, my athletes, and, and my delivery and my, my methods of interaction and delivery, I tend to now do from the perspective of trying to, to see how it's perceived by them. 
to the extent that I'll actually ask them, you know, how did that come across? You know, and th- these are the things that I'm not sure that everyone does and without obviously learning through experience. So how do we shortcut years of those experiences you and I had at the beginning for our, for our listeners? Are there a, I, I know you've sort of said a lot of things here, but are there a couple of tips that, that come to mind from you? Well, it, it reminds me of a, this concept called the ladder of inference that you might be aware of, which mm. for me, particularly in a sporting context, conflict normally arises because two people are on a slightly different starting point, despite the fact that the end goal is the same. So, you know, my end goal in swimming is always how do we make you swim faster? How do we let you get, how do we help you get from A to B faster each time? And, and that's exactly the same as the coaches, exactly the same as my physiologist, S&T coaches, and so on and so forth. But we quite often just start on different stages on that ladder. And on those two ladders, I've got my pool of information and data that my ladder is rooted in. They've got their information of pool and data that their ladder is sitting in. And those two pools overlap, but only somewhat. So sometimes it just takes us both to go back down the ladder have a conversation, have a look at what every what we're both seeing, and then we can go back both back up the ladder at the same speed and we're going to the same goal at the same time. So, yeah, quite often if we're experiencing little bits of conflict or a difference in opinion, we've just got to go, look, let's, let's slow down, let's take check, let's work out what you think you know, what I think I know, and why we're seeing this a little bit differently, and then we can move forward. That's brilliant, Rich. You know, I think, as you were saying that, I think, a lot of it, you know, it's, it's very easy. Well, I guess it's easy for us old dogs to say, this is what we know now. And of course, we do it differently. But of course, being that new practitioner, the person that's just started, it is a daunting experience. You've got all that knowledge and experience that you cannot wait to jump in with all that rocket science, only to discover that a lot of them aren't that interested in the rocket science. So therefore you're you're put into the situation of being out of your comfort zone. And I guess it's like anything. It's like it's like learning to do public speaking or or whatever. I think to a certain extent, and this is just my take on this, but you can overthink it through sometimes. You just need to do it. And that's of course why we call it practice, isn't it? We just need to keep practicing because the real the real gems come from learning from the mistakes as long as you actually learn from them and and that's why reflection is is so important i mean how do you feel about that because obviously you're now in a situation where you're leading other practitioners you're in a in a position to mentor obviously there's a limit to the amount of time that you're going to have is there a certain approach that you have to that to mentoring and development yeah. There are, on the most basic of level, I always start out with just a blank page of paper and I get, I get who I'm working with to say, right, where, where do you want to be? You know, where, where do you want to go? What's the, what's the end point here if there ever is an end point? And we just try and get, and there's still a bit of clarity there, but just get some words in a paper. And then we just go through a short exercise of saying, right, well, where are we just now? And how are you rating it? And, and therefore, what do you think is important to bridge those two things? What are the experiences that you need to, to gather and to gain and the exposures that you need? And then let's go about trying to facilitate that. So I always like to come back to that super simple model and then, you know, maybe review it frequently maybe not so much frequently but infrequently and pull it out six months later and say hey look just look how far we've come on this on this journey and on this um on this little adventure so yeah that's that's probably the most simple method that i would um uh, that i would start with i think particularly what i did very early in my career and i still kind of do just a little bit just now is rate yourself on how well you know your sport and and the technical 
especially the nutritional challenges of your sport, particularly to new practitioners coming into sport. Don't miss out on asking the naive questions. There's a real value to going into sport and just saying, why do you do it that way? Or I don't understand that. You know, and I always regret not asking those questions enough in, in every job that I've gone into. And there's another bit there about understand the absolute basics of the sport as well. So you just you don't look incredibly stupid when you're uh, when you're trying to talk about these things. So, yeah, rate yourself on your sport and just how well you know that and technical requirements. Rate yourself on your general nutrition, sport nutrition knowledge, clinical nutrition knowledge, whatever you think is going to be important there. And then rate yourself on where you think the, you know, the best or, or sorry, maybe rate yourself maybe on the slightly more academic scale of, of sport and exercise nutrition. And then rate yourself on where you think the best practitioner in the world is and what it is that they're doing and why that they're doing it. So maybe looking at something that's a little bit more behavioural about what they do and why they do that and then what you need to develop in order to do that. So I think coming back to those simple three areas of your sport, your technical knowledge and your practitioner abilities and just reading those three areas isn't going to put you far off where you need to spend a bit of time developing. Absolutely. It's a great start. And again, I, I just go back to what I just said, you know, you just got to have a go. Uh, and that in itself, it does take some metal to really have a go. But once you do, you'll find that they're really, yeah, there can be silly questions, but there's nothing as stupid as not asking. Yes. And I think you you really get respect from, from your colleagues, as long as you don't keep asking the same question and you clearly haven't learned anything. But look, you know, that's something I think that will come out of this sort of mini series of podcasts. I'm going to have these conversations with a lot of people. And, you know, another thing that will come to light is there's more than one way of doing something. And that's where I go back to my comment about toolboxes of knowledge tool you know in your toolbox you've got your knowledge you've got your your strategies you've got your literally your tools you know your skinfold calipers or your metabolic carts or whatever it is you know you just learn to use them and learn the strengths and and weaknesses the limitations of those things but ultimately you learn by doing that's pretty critical i completely agree with that and, and i always encourage younger practitioners to start developing how they deliver those absolute basics. So mm. you, we're all going to have to sit in presentations or consultations and explain concepts of energy balance or fluid balance or metabolism, whatever it is. So how do you prepare yourself to deliver those messages? You know, those are stock messages. What analogies do you use? Do you talk about, do you use a car analogy or a hybrid car analogy or, or whatever do you use? But you've just got to start building up these these constructs in your head. And like you say, putting them out there and testing them and seeing how people hold on to them, seeing what you get a bit of traction and understanding of and having the different ways in which you can increase the level of technical input to these or you can you can pull it right back and keep it real real simple and real basic so that you're able to to deliver to whatever your audience is and appreciate that when you're speaking to a rate to a group of athletes you've got a real range of audiences a real mix of abilities to uh, to comprehend that material and critically also a real mix in desire to interpret that information you know you give a presentation to a bunch of footballers who let's be honest particularly in elite football they don't really need a huge amount of nutrition input because talent is going to get them pretty far on it on its own then you've got to be really well prepared to deliver a very solid sound message and have the backing of everybody else around you and the support staff in order to have your strategies executed yeah there's a lot in there rich i'd love to delve deeper but for the sake of time i'm going to I'm going to move on. You know, one thing that's obvious from listening to you, and, and you and I know this anyway, but there's a huge amount of variety 
of sports and approaches and experiences and so on. But if we were to differentiate between a team sport and working with individuals, I'd love to get your perspective on that because you've clearly done both. We are going to talk about rugby in a bit because I really want to get into that. So we'll get back into the team sport thing. But ultimately that difference, because when you're learning, a lot of what you're doing is on your own. You might get to practice on a few individuals, but that team sport environment is is completely different. Or if you've done your, you know, some experience, you've done some work placements or whatever in a team setting, that of course is radically different than the individual sport. And even then we could differentiate between the elite athlete individual as part of a world-class program or, you know, like when I was with Great Britain fencing for Rio, it's a squad, but they were very much individuals, which is completely different than the atypical, you know, team perspective. So what, what sort of lessons and learnings did you have from those two different aspects? I think I'll probably start where you ended there and, and again, just talk about the individualization. I, I suppose I hadn't appreciated just how individual an individual sport is until, until I was in there with swimming. And if I could be, and I'm, I'm not going to suggest that other people were this way, but I certainly challenge myself to say, there were some lazy nutrition strategies that I employed in rugby. You know, in, in, in rugby, it was pretty easy to group squads or group players together. You might have your front rowers or your tight fives. You might have your back rowers or your halfbacks together and so on and so forth. Or you would group them based on sometimes body composition scores or sometimes what they would move in the gym or so on and so forth. So you'd almost take these completely arbitrary groups overlooking the individual as a person and then you would employ a strategy based on what that what that grouping was and like I say it was probably just lazy nutrition because we didn't want to do it or we didn't have the time to do it on a uh, on an individual level so that was the big the big thing that hit home with uh, with swimming is actually I can't can't do it this way anymore I've got to look at this as 50 individual strategies instead of 225 uh, people strategies and then within that particularly within swimming comparison to rugby the, the central role of the coach is really important so so swimming is quite an autocratic sport the you know the coach says and the and the swimmer does largely and you know that's even manifested by the coach walking up and down poolside looking down in the swimmer the swimmer looking up and saying yes coach what do I do was that a good rep or was that a bad rep and so on and it's really only when the swimmer develops a little bit older and has far better understanding of themselves and of their event that they actually start to contribute and it becomes a real two-way discussion with the coach about what type of training is is right for you and how do we optimally prepare you as well but it means that the uh, the coach is central to anything happening with the swimmer so if you want to impact a swimmer you need to go through the coach and you need to make sure that the coach is on side and that's slightly different to you know to that rugby approach where the coach possibly sometimes takes the nutritionist for as just being there and and therefore they will just get on with their job and actually they don't the two head coach and nutritionist in rugby or in team sports don't really often cross over that much there's a heck of a lot of crossover between nutrition and snc nutrition and the medical team and so on but not necessarily with technical coaches or with the head coaches so yeah managing to understand what those coaches needs those coaches beliefs were and pitching my material at the right level for them and then in turn for their athlete was incredibly important because I'm sure as you can appreciate those some coaches are going to say yeah I want I want absolutely everything tell me everything you know upskill me and 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 let's have the swimmer involved in that conversation as well 
Some are going to say, no, away you go, you just deal with them and just tell me if they're complying or not. And some are going to say, no, do you know what? I want them to be entirely self-sufficient so you don't give them anything. They they come and find it and they come and find you for it. So you've got to have a dozen different ways of pitching exactly the same message and exactly the same material when you work at that uh, individual level as well. That's great. And it's more gold, star, gold dust there, especially for the for the people just getting into this career. And I guess the, the one thing that comes straight to my head is the many challenges that you will find in these settings. And of course, we've all will have experienced different challenges, but some of them will undoubtedly be the same. And the, some of the things that I'm thinking about in these team settings is, you know, the assumption that before people get into those environments, the assumption is, oh, it's a professional football team. They've got huge amounts of money, therefore huge amounts of resources. Even in professional rugby, nowhere near as wealthy as elite football. But of course, they're pretty well, you know, they're, they're, they're doing all right. But when it boils down to the nutrition department, that is not necessarily the experience that we enjoy. And of course, you move out of those professional settings and into your lottery funded environments like Olympics and so on, you've got a completely different experience where you're surrounded by lack of resources and various other things, unless it's, you know, one of the top sports where we do quite well at the Olympics, for example, as compared to another sport, which doesn't do so well. And of course they're not as well resourced. And of course you might find yourself working across the span of these different, these different areas. What what sort of things have you seen over the years or continue to see? You don't have to be overly specific if it's super sensitive, but by taking the blinkers off people's eyes as to what actually exists out there. And I guess the real gem of here is maybe some of the workarounds, some of the solutions that you found to get around those problems. You know, you raise a great point in, in about the assumptions of finance within organisations. And the first thing you've got to appreciate is that just because there's money in one budget line doesn't mean there's going to be money in another budget line. So, yes, the the, the club or the organisation or the team might recruit a player and might be able to pay a transfer fee of X or, or a wage of X. That doesn't mean that anything like the equivalent amount of money will be coming into your nutrition budget or into your nutrition department. And especially so when it comes to the Olympic sports where, yeah, budgets are are certainly tighter. A lot of the time it's all public purse that they're funded from through UK sport and national lottery money as well. And as a result, a lot of things are fixed. And, and if I can go on a little bit of a soapbox for a second, just for young practitioners and recruitment and so on. Most posts that are recruited, if they're particularly if they're based part time or, you know, it's not full time hours. The reason for that most likely will be quite simply the sport just doesn't have enough money to employ anything more. You know, we all want more nutrition, more physiology, more S&C, more biomechanics and so on. Every, every sport largely does. So therefore, if there is an opportunity that's up there, don't go asking, well, can we make this four days a week instead of two days a week? Or can I shuffle about these days to suit me that little bit better? Because the reality is the sport knows what they want and they're trying to ask for the best that they can possibly get. So, sorry, slight slight tangent and, and a bit of a rant there. I think no, this Rich, is... Just, just, I just want to interject because it's a great point that you make. And I remember quite a few years ago when I was doing my doctor and an S&C program at Middlesex with Ant Turner, Anthony <laughs> Turner. He had this brilliant thing that he would ram down the students, well, not ram them down, but it would impress upon them the need to justify your role. So rather than, rather than, and by justifying, I mean, you do a great job, obviously, but you also need to help other people see the impact of your work, because if they're not specifically looking for the impact, they don't realize how valuable 
your work actually is. I, hopefully I haven't sort of knocked you off course there, but I felt that that was an important thing that, that practitioners do need to keep in mind in their roles is helping other people to understand the value of their role. As a personal value for me, I, I'm largely driven by a, one of my drivers is a sense of responsibility. And that's something that I accept and I accept willingly. But if uh, British Swimming have employed me and they've trusted me in order to do a specific job, and I feel a huge not necessarily a burden of responsibility, but a huge responsibility to deliver to them on that. And as a result of that, I there's an element of, of honour there in representing them and doing the best that I can for them. And I think I probably just want to impress that, particularly on some young graduates, because I have had situations where, you know, people feel as if the position is already earned before they're even in the door and, and therefore it's due to them this opportunity. And I think we've got to maybe take a little bit step back and be a little bit more respectful to say, hey, somebody else is taking a big chance on you. You better step up to that and you better deliver based on what is expected of you there as well. And therefore, like you say, justify the impact that you're having and, and celebrate that role. It's certainly something I would criticise myself of, that I've, I've never been the one to necessarily celebrate nutrition and talk up nutrition and shout about it with all the bells and whistles, because I've always taken a bit more of a pragmatic approach and maybe a little bit more of, and you know, use the phrase, look through a different lens and look through a multidisciplinary lens and see, well, actually, I can see where nutrition has an impact here and influences here, but actually the greater impact here in this scenario is going to be a different discipline or a different practitioner, whoever it may well be. So I think it's important that we, yes, we absolutely ensure that we communicate where we're making positive progress and where we're having an impact, not to dismiss where nutrition sits within the wider scheme of things and the challenges that are asked of, of athletes. Yes, that's a shock for those people, you know, for graduates. You've, you've spent all these years learning about how awesome performance nutrition is and as i've talked about many times on on the more technical podcasts that i do you know it, it's exciting times for our field because oh, yeah. the evolution of knowledge is gaining pace and it's you know getting more sophisticated with laboratory mm. techniques and so on but it still doesn't change the fact that like you said there is so much involved in what makes and breaks an athlete and, and what it takes to achieve a win in a game, a season, a match, a fight, get a gold medal every three years or, or whatever. And nutrition is not the biggest factor there. It is a factor. And yeah, at times it becomes more important. But I guess, yes, it's being awareness of where you fit into that, into that bigger picture is also important because you can turn people off by overdoing the shouting out like you say, you know, oh, nutrition's amazing, it's mega, whatever. But yes, but, you know, just put it into context. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, there's part of that as well that we've alluded to a couple of times that 90% of the time you'll use 10% of your skills or 10% of your ability there. And I'd like to use, when talking about that, I use the example of, of muscle protein synthesis. And, you know, you and I could record a podcast, and, well, you have recorded plenty of podcasts just on that topic and thinking various different things in around you know, leucine thresholds and sensitivity to amino acids and and you know, all of these different bits and pieces. And you can, we can, as practitioners, talk to our athletes on that level. And there's going to be a small handful that want and value that information. But the vast majority of them are going to, you're going to turn around and you're going to go, yeah, do you know what? You're having about, about 20 grams of protein in around about the time of your key lifting session of the day or your key training session of the day. That's fine let's move on and let's move on to the next thing. So I think a lot of the time, let's not paralyze ourselves with the detail. 
and let's just maybe a little bit zoom out. We can think about the detail in the background, but our athlete doesn't necessarily need to know that. They just need to be comforted that what they're doing is, is on the right lines. But the counter to that is if you always take that headline message, people don't necessarily get that opportunity, like you said about the Tony Turner example, don't get that opportunity to understand that actually you are having an impact in these areas. Yeah. So it's it's fine taking the top level and saying, yeah, do you know what, that's grossly, that's fine and, and, and it's not causing a problem. But there are times where you need to just interject with a little bit more science, a little bit more information to make sure that the critical individuals around you who will be supporting your messages, such as a coach or an S&C coach or a physio, whoever it might well be, understand that there's a lot more in the background to that than just saying, yeah, a glass of milk is fine after training. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You need to have a measured sort of response and approach to these things and fundamentally it's very easy for you to reveal the fact that you don't actually understand something mm. if you overcomplicate issues or start talking about things you might forget that some of your colleagues might have masters phds in physiology or something and then you really you know you really should have thought about that more clearly which is why i i have that phrase of you can but should you that's my my mantra i always ask myself i can i should i do this i can but should I sort of situation? Let's just quickly change direction slightly here. You've worked in for a, a significant portion of your career has been working in rugby and also in swimming. And we could do podcasts on one on each of those. But is there anything that really stands out for you having worked now in both of those in those fields that you feel were sort of your key learning points that came from that? If that's even possible to ask from you. In both sports, one of the first things that I always want to do is look to say, how can we strengthen the environment? And I think that's really important for practitioners to look at, strengthening the environment around them. Because, you know, as we've spoken about, the nutritionist isn't always going to be on the shop floor. You know, they're not always going to be in the team room, in the changing room, in the dining hall all the time where we typically work part time across multiple different sports and so on. So what can you do to make sure that the environment is cueing the behaviours that you well meet? Uh, I think that's incredibly important. So using the environment to positively cue those actions and also avoid those conflicting messages. So the simplest thing will just be being on top of catering and menus and so on. So, you know, I always remember I gave a presentation to some of my judo players and it was a general, I think it was a young group. So it was a bit of general healthy eating, you know, the importance of fruit and veg. And then we went to lunch and it was burgers and chips that were served for lunch. And it just fell flat in its face. And there's no way that my message landed because all those guys remembered about nutrition was those, oh, remember those yummy burgers that we got from that camp. So I've spoken with numerous practitioners about strategies, ideas, interventions that are all great, but ultimately are always going to fail because they're not going to be present at the execution of them. So particularly when you're planning a strategy, you've got to think, how is, how is this going to play out? Uh, who's going to do this for me? Is it is it the athlete that's going to do it? So for me, if I'm thinking I won't be poolside at the Olympic Games when my guys are going through their final two hours as they're preparing for their Olympic finals. So I need to be confident that they know what they're doing. They know how much they're drinking, what they're drinking, when they're eating, how they're going to be feeling, what uh, caffeine strategies they might well be using and so on and so forth. So we've got to get that dialed in well in advance and run through various different scenarios as well. In nutrition, if I wasn't at a game, is the S&C coach going to be making sure that the recovery shakes were available? Sorry, this is in rugby. Is the S&C coach going to be making sure that the shakes are available or is the kit man going to be making sure that the right 
fluids are available to the right people. So you've got to really think very pragmatically, very long term with these strategies, because otherwise the strategies they've got are great, but are going to fall flat in their face if you've not cued the environment or used the environment to reinforce them. Yeah, and I think a key point that comes from that is you might be an individual nutritionist, but you're working in a team in one form or another. And there's a lot of people that can help reinforce your strategies. And of course, that brings us back to the developing the conversations, the relationships, you know, not just with the players, with the S&C coaches, with the technical staff. And you all want to sing from the same hymn sheet at the end of the day. And of course, you all want to, you all want to win and, and do well. And that takes some work. Of course it does. Listen, right now, we're all going through a bit of a difficult time with the pandemic. COVID is impacting literally everyone in, in the world. And it, it's crazy times. You know, it's already been a year. Elite sport is privileged in many ways to operate when many other organizations, businesses, amateur sports, and so on have not been able to do that. So it would be really fascinating just to quickly get through the lens of Rich Chesser working with elite, you know, elite swimming during COVID. I mean, what is that like? And and what sort of things have you been experiencing? And, you know, how do you get around the many challenges that are obvious? It's um, it's been tough. Uh, Obviously, we went down to original lockdown first lockdown in, in around at this time last year so March last year and immediately for us that was a bit of a sensitive time we fairly quickly after that cancelled our, our British Championships which was our selection event for Olympic Games then we got the message shortly after that that Olympic Games was going to be delayed by years so in the first couple of weeks or, or, or month or so in lockdown we, we weren't necessarily dealing with the athlete we were dealing with the person and that's because you know some people there, what they'd been building for the last four years had just been taken away from them. And it was, it became very difficult for them mentally to reset and to acknowledge that. And especially, you know, at that time, a year or kind of 11, 10 months ago, we didn't know what we know now about how it's probably going to play out over the, over the summer and so on and so forth. So for some people, they were saying, look, I've, I've missed my opportunity. For some people, they were saying, oh, that's brilliant. I've got another year to prepare. I've got another year of opportunity here to, to maybe make the games or make a medal at the games the following year. So it was a very challenging time. What we did as a sport is a couple of our training groups just got straight into training straight away and straight into home-based training, um, circuit sessions, S&C sessions at home. We had a huge job as a physical performance team to scramble around and make sure people had kit and equipment. So whether that be a, a bike or whether it be a rowing machine or anything like that as well, just so they could maintain some form of cardiovascular work. Because no disrespect to our swimmers, but they're not very good on land. They're not very competent on land. You know, they're not great runners. They're not great cyclists, but they're blinking great swimmers. So they're very, very efficient in water and they're not so efficient on land. So we we know that we can't just say, well, you know, you used to swim 45 kilometers a week. Let's get you running 20 kilometers a week. You know, it just doesn't work like that. Our guys would break fairly quickly. So we spearheaded with our performance director, uh, uh, part of the approach for the, the elite training, um, the elite sport training special dispensation to to be able to, to get back in, into facilities and very heavily risk mitigated circumstances. And it meant that we were only out of the water for maybe about eight to 10 weeks from first lockdown. So most of our guys actually got back into, most of our elite swimmers got back into water 
maybe around about June, June, July or so last year, which then gave them about six weeks or so in which they could do a little bit of top-up training and just get back used to swimming again. Now, what we've managed to do very successfully is, is maintain a pretty good level of cardiovascular fitness. So all we had to do was really get them used to swimming fitness again and get them used to, you know, breathing rate, ventilation, short turnarounds in between um, reps and so on, and just coping with feeling good in the, in the water. But we also managed to bank a huge amount of physical conditioning. So we managed to get a lot of tissue capacity work across key areas for us are going to be hips, trunk and shoulders, as you'd expect. So we managed to get a great volume in there. So we actually returned athletes who were more physically robust, competent and, and arguably stronger than they almost ever had been. And then we just had to rebuild back on the swimming specific fitness piece. So we're fortunate in that we were back in the water pretty early on. We took a little bit of a break over the natural summer period and then we were ready for a full attack come kind of late August into our, into our normal winter cycle. So Certainly since mid-August, things haven't been disrupted when it comes to training in particular. What we do have, obviously, is very secure environments when it comes to COVID risk management. You know, all our swimmers are temperature checked when they enter buildings. They, they self-report on their daily monitoring. They self-report if there's been any exposure to any known COVID cases or any risks that they've been involved in. And then we take appropriate corrective action if anybody does pop up with any symptoms. And we're because we've had very high standards of that and managing social distancing and so on, we've had very, very few COVID cases within our groups, which is just great to great to see. From a nutrition perspective, the, the first thing I did, especially being with the unknown from an immunity perspective early on, I did a lot of check-ins with all my guys and just made sure that things were set up for them in the home environment. You know, a lot of our guys who were used to training at their normal sites, they, they migrated home at the start of lockdown. So they went and lived with parents or, or, or other family members and so on. So they weren't on their own. And as a result, they just had a big change in their nutrition environment. So some of them were actually eating a lot better because maybe parents were cooking for them or siblings were cooking for them some of them met a lot worse because there was always biscuits in the cupboards and so on and so forth so I just did a little bit of a round robin and made sure that they were looking after themselves and, and adjusting to their new environment and that those sort of informal check-ins and, and work-ons um, ensued and all of these were just zoom calls whatsapp calls facetime calls and so on it kind of set the groundwork for more formal check-ins as we changed environments so as we got back in the water there was another formal check-in with them as we came back from our, our summer break and got back into to retraining our training again there was another formal check-in and so on so from a nutrition perspective it was a real mixture of informal and, and formal touch points before i started being back on site in uh, around about September last year. So it's been a little, well, challenging the first instance because of the unknowns and then managing people through a long period of home-based training. But since then, it's been fairly straightforward for us. So it puts us in a very nice position going into the summer. I mean, that's fascinating. I guess a, a key there is, you know, you hear people say things like learn to expect the unexpected. And, mm. you know, it's a very chaotic environment practice in general, particularly in team sports and working with, I guess, the types of athletes in the environments that you're working with, you start throwing in things like travel and so on and so forth. But what about the situation you also have found yourself in with Tokyo 2020, <laughs> which might not be in 2020? I mean, bearing in mind that these athletes train for a very long time, the strategy is building them to, especially with an Olympic cycle, to that point several years from now, let's say. And then the unthinkable has happened and that entire 
date has changed. I mean, what, so just take take us back. This will be the last thing that we'll we'll have time to get into. But just take us back to to what's happened and how you're managing to deal with that. It'd be fascinating. You're absolutely right. It, it's, it was a huge challenge for the swimmers to try and get their head around. But equally, also a huge challenge for the staff to get their head around because you're right. We prepare swimmers based on a four-year cycle. We prepare Olympic athletes on a four-year cycle, and and it's this crescendo to this this summer of the fourth year. But it's also a crescendo for the staff and the and the coaches in particular. So so that was pulled away from them, and some of them found that quite just quite difficult and needed to take a little bit of time to without overdoing it, but essentially to mourn to mourn the loss of the of the Olympics for that summer because it's it's such a big it's a critical event for the Olympic sports. It's the it's the absolute pinnacle, and nothing quite comes close to it. So, yeah, there was there was a challenge there. But one of our mantras in uh, in British swimming is adapt to achieve, and and we've adapted to that pretty quickly and pretty well. I actually had a planning call with Wendy Martinson, who's the BOA nutritionist, this morning, and we were just chatting through what of the strategies that we put in place last year we're still going to be able to carry forward into this year and but how how things will look with a covid lens through them so even the simple things down to well you know it's not buffet catering anymore we're going to have to manage a way in which we manage the food service to these individuals but also when we operate in bubbles whether it be in the holding camp or in the village itself how do you harness some of that emotive role that food plays? So, you know, the swimmers or the athletes can't pop out and have a coffee on their afternoon off because there's no outlet to do that. They can't go and expose themselves. They can't experience what maybe Tokyo has to offer on their on their little bit of downtime. So we've got a role to play there to say, hey, nutrition is functional and performance out focused, but equally we recognize that this is a tricky environment to be in and let's use food as a little bit of a, a little bit of an opportunity to be excited about something and to have a, a strong emotional response to it and, and and enjoy it again. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge when we're there in the summer, but it's a challenge that we're we're ready to accept and that we're looking forward to. We're we're just we're at the moment we're grateful that the games are going ahead and therefore we will work around every single challenge that comes our way. There are always solutions to these things. Yeah, I, it's mind boggling, and in the last hour and whatever that we've been chatting of course it's only a drop in the ocean of your own experiences and of course everybody has got a completely unique perspective to what's going on and of course we've got to sit there as sort of robust individuals and you know we could talk about mental health and all these other things that are very much part of that and we've got to be there for ourselves our teammates and our and our athletes and it's an interesting one isn't it with food because it isn't just a, a strategy to make you bigger, faster, stronger. It's also something that you use to be sociable. It can have religious connotations. It's absolutely a need and a preference for people. And therein lies the problems with it as well. And of course, we don't want to be the harbingers of death when it comes to something that they love, particularly when they don't have their social environments in normal places and the ability to have other escapisms, so to speak, that all human beings would crave for. I guess you know, have you found that to be something that has made life for the nutritionist even harder during these times or interested in yeah, your thoughts? Absolutely. But again, if we if we flip it on its head, we say there's a great opportunity there because I'm sure like most of us, we, we got a little bit more involved in the kitchen over lockdown and 
you know, it'll be the first first lockdowns, the banana bread lockdown, wasn't it? And, and everybody got in there, got cooking. And, and I took that opportunity. I tried to give out as many recipe ideas and meal ideas to my guys as possible. We did the occasional video walkthrough of, or, or Zoom call cooking session and so on and so forth. So we tried to harness these little bits of opportunities. But you know, ultimately, you're you're right. People use food in a very social setting and an environment and atmosphere sometimes. And a couple of our guys who would be used to just going out for coffee together ended up maybe going, getting a drive-through coffee when they reopened and just you know sitting cars adjacent to each other and chatting to each other through through the windows just because it it, it returned that level of social interaction that food sits in the middle of. But it's not about the food. It was nothing about the coffee. It was nothing about the latte. It was just about the social interaction. And again, that's something that we've got to try and harness when we move into to competition. We've got that absence of what used to be everybody sitting down at big, long dining tables or in little pods and just chewing the fat. And, and I kind of like nothing more than that. It's going off in a, a bit of a segue, but I like nothing more than that, particularly in team sports. We used to just be able to sit around the dinner table for, for hours and just just chat afterwards. And it would sometimes be about food. It would sometimes be nothing about food. And I think as the, as the practitioner, you've got to embrace all of those food-based conversations and not just try and turn it into a into a healthy nutrition or a performance nutrition conversation you've got to embrace the fish and chips conversations the domino's pizzas conversations and so on and so forth so so food does sit in this central position around some of our social interactions but it's it's not about the food well no pun intended but there's a great deal of food for thought in <laughs> what you've shared with us and yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to the recording of this just for my own my own benefit because so much valuable information came out of that conversation with you, Rich. I'm really grateful for you sharing your knowledge and experiences with me and the listeners today. It's been awesome. I guess my last thing to get out of you is if you were to have a position available as a performance nutritionist working in your team, you know, jobs become available and people they've got their they've done what they've done and they submit their cvs and then it's sort of a fingers crossed from the perspective of you looking for that person to join your team for the benefit of that that practitioner looking to get those sorts of roles and have the benefit of working with people like yourself in the awesome environments that you work what sort of tips would you give those people to to be able to stand out from the face it many people that are likely to apply for these roles I suppose two answers to that. I'll give the slightly dry answer first, and that is particularly modern day organisations, when they recruit, they will recruit normally using some sort of online platform. It's no longer just a case of, it's certainly not a case of print off your CV, stick it in the post and it, and it arrives on somebody's desk. The first thing you've really got to do is you've got to demonstrate very quickly and clearly that you meet the essential criteria. And then if you don't meet the essential criteria, you've got to be very savvy about how you make sure that every bit of desirable criteria and as close as possible to the essential criteria is mapped there. And I say that because when, you know, if if I'm recruiting and I'm looking through a bunch of CVs, I need to very quickly filter what is part of our criteria and or who's who's meeting our criteria and not. And the reality is that you might agree or disagree with the criteria, but it's there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. And as I said before, the recruiters have already thought about the job, already thought about the job description, what they need from that individual. So if somebody meets that criteria and very quickly demonstrates that in their CV, then it's going to go into the yes pile or at least the let's look at it later. So 
when you're applying for jobs, your, your aim always needs to be, can I stay in the game for as long as possible? Can I get to the next round, the next round, the next round? Keep myself in that interviewee's or interviewer's thoughts. Yeah, make it easy for your CV to read. And unfortunately, if you don't meet a lot of that session of criteria, as good a person or an opportunity you might well have, or you might well be, then it's it's probably not going to get any further. And as a slight side to that, also respect the job that you're applying for. So if I went to employ a nutritionist for two days a week and I got a physiologist applying and saying, I think this would be my, my great step into elite sports. Well, sorry, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a nutritionist, somebody who's passionate about the same things that I am. I'm not here to give you a foot in the door, even if this is a relatively entry level job on a couple of days a week. So respect the position that you're applying for. That's the dry bit done. On the what I'd be looking for is a CV particular that shouts out something to me to say, I've gone, I've tried to go above and beyond. I've accepted all of the learning opportunities that are around me through my academic and I've advanced them by trying to uh, gain exposure to other individuals, other organisations, had shadowing opportunities or work experience opportunities here. I've undertaken other CPD or development opportunities here and so on and so forth. So anything like that that just lets me say, I've got a really motivated individual here and that's what I'm going to be interested in because like I said before, there's, you know, 90% of the time you might use 10% of your skill set. Now, I'm not trying to diminish what we need to know as practitioners, but a lot of it we can teach and we can learn. And if you've missed it in the academic, we can we can back that up. But what I can't do as well or as easily is develop somebody into a person that is going to be suitable in an elite sports environment. So the more exposure, the more opportunities that they've had to be exposed exposed to that and, and start to understand that and know how it feels, the easier it's going to be for them to be up and running and impactful in the position that I'm asking them. That's brilliant. Thank you, Rich. Very, very important advice that you've shared. So that's great. These are the things that I wish I'd heard when I was younger. You know, that's why I'm asking these questions now. If people want to follow you, social media, that sort of thing, is that something that you have time for? And what do you recommend for people to keep tabs if they yep. have to. I think if, yeah. if people want to follow me, by all means, but they'll be sorely <laughs> disappointed in what my output is. It's it's not great. It's social. I, I must say, I'm, I'm one of those social passive social media users. So I like to I like to glean information from other people. I don't necessarily put information out there, and that's not for any reason other than to be honest. I don't really understand what people want from social media a lot of the time. So I don't post a lot about nutrition. I don't post a lot about my my life in general. So it's. <laughs> It's probably not worth a follow, I'll be honest. Time well spent, Rich. Time well spent. <laughs> I, have, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. Sadly, it's somewhat necessary for my work, but I, yeah, I'm too busy in the real world most of the time to get that into it. But yes. yeah. Well, look, listen, it's been awesome. I always enjoy having chats with you and we'll do another one down the road when there's a bit more to share. But I will ensure that the transcript to this conversation is uh, is available for the podcast on the website. And there'll be a few podcasts to link that I think are are relevant. And of course, further down the road, I'm going to chat to other uh, uh, similarly experienced, like-minded practitioners. And um, I'm sure people will will see that there are so many different thoughts and ideas and approaches, um, you know, that differentiates you all, but also you all do meet, you know, meet in the middle to a certain extent. So that brings us to the end of our conversation. And I look forward to bringing another podcast back very soon. Take care, everyone.